Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 69, Venice, part 6. Before we start, I have to address a correction that was made regarding something I said last episode. If you've already listened to last week's episode, you will have heard me talk about the agreement in 1154 between Venice and the Normans. This placed the dividing line of their influence at the city of Ragusa. I very superficially assumed, without any further research, that the city in question was the Ragusa in the south of Sicily. A prompt email from René S. pointed out that there is more than one Ragusa and that the other was in Croatia, better known as Dubrovnik. The city is higher north from the Sicilian Ragusa and it would have made a lot more sense for the Normans to agree on that as the limit for their sphere of influence. Otherwise, they would be ceding almost all of the sea around their dominions to the Venetians. Speaking of which, Dubrovnik seems to have some elements of its development in common with Venice and even became itself an independent republic in the mid-14th century. Anyway, it was already on my list of must-see places, and now it is even more. Thank you very much to René for pointing this out. If you didn't hear the mistake in the last episode, it means I've already corrected it. Back to us. Last time we left off Doge Domenico Morosini having finished the bell tower of St. Mark's in the mid-12th century. The bell tower of St. Mark's placed at the area of the square that opens up onto the lagoon, is an important symbol of the city. On the 8th of May 1997, on the bicentennial anniversary of the fall of the Venetian Republic to Napoleon, the tower was occupied by a group of men with a homemade A-team-style tank called Tanko. They had left Padova with a stolen RV, and a truck containing Tanko. They had boarded a ferry, and once on board, using a World War II Beretta MAB-38 machine gun, they hijacked the ferry, forcing it to dock at St. Mark's Square. Once there, they took the tank to the tower, broke down the door, climbed to the highest level, and unfurled the flag with the winged lion of the Republic of Venice. This group was known as the Serenissimi, the most serene ones, with the official name of their organization being the Veneto Serenissimo Governo e Veneta Serenissima Armata, the most serene government and army of Veneto. They were one of many northern independent groups which characterized Italian history in the late 80s and early 90s, In many cases, these groups would end up becoming part of the Northern League Party, which would later drop the Northern part to become the Populist Nationalist League Party. The Serenissimi were all arrested the next day and ended up serving relatively light prison sentences. 
the bell tower remained basically indifferent to the events around it. The Dodger who oversaw its completion back in the 12th century, the aforementioned Domenico Morosini, died in 1156, leaving a rather hot potato in the hands of his successor, Vitale Michiel II. The warm vegetable in question was the situation in northern Italy between the communes and Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa that we have spoken of a lot, maybe too much, some of you might say. Until that point, Venice had managed to stay out of the situation, maintaining a generally neutral position. But when the papal schism occurred in 1159 between Pope Alexander III and Pope Victor IV, pushed by the emperor, it was time for Venice to choose sides. In the end, they opted for Alexander III and the communes. After all, how likely was it that an emperor who was dead set on bringing all the peninsula under the influence of the imperial crown would tolerate an independent republic on its borders? Not likely at all. As soon as he heard the news, Barbarossa lost no time in reacting. He convinced the cities of Ferrara, Padova and Verona to attack Venice, but they got nowhere. He then tried to involve the German patriarch of Aquileia, but that also to no avail. When the Lombard League was then formed in the 1160s, Venice adhered, but their involvement in the whole struggle between the communes of the League and Barbarossa, leading up to the Battle of Lignano, did not really go much further than financial support. As Venice moved closer to the cities of northern Italy, the relationship with Constantinople was deteriorating. By now, the Venetians living in the great capital of the Eastern Roman Empire were seen as arrogant and proud. The emperor, Manuel Comnenus, was actively promoting the presence of the Genoese, the people from Amalfi, and worst of all, the hated Pisans. Things really came to a head in 1171. The spark was an attack on a quarter of Constantinople called Galata. This is the area towards the northern part of the city, near the so-called Golden Horn, and still exists in modern-day Istanbul. The area had been assigned to the Genoese. No one knew who had been responsible for the attack, but Emperor Comnenus was quick, perhaps too quick, to blame the Venetians, although the Genoese themselves vouched for their innocence. On the 11th of March, 1172, all of the Venetians in the city, 10,000 or so of them, were arrested and all of their lands confiscated. With one fell swoop, the emperor had completely cancelled the presence of the most serene republic from his capital. Doge Vitale Michiel II could not stand for this affront. His first step was to raise a tax, and for this reason the city was divided into sestieri, the same you can find to this day. They are Castello, Cannareggio, Dorso Duro, Santa Croce, San Polo and San Marco. The Venetians did not make a peep at this. It was payback time. 
Before the year was out, a fleet of 120 ships left the lagoon, with the Dodger himself leading. Before they reached Constantinople, however, they were met with an envoy from Emperor Comnenus, asking them to send a delegation to him to talk peace. The delegation was sent and included one Enrico Dandolo, an experienced diplomat who at the time could have been in his early 60s. As the fleet waited in a harbour for the delegation to return, tragedy struck in the form of the bubonic plague. By the time the delegation did return, they found the sailors dead and dying in droves. The news they brought back was not good. The delegation had simply been a ruse by the Byzantines to buy more time. It had been completely successful. The Dodger and his diminished invasion force did not have the strength nor the morale to continue. They returned home, taking the disease with them. As the inhabitants of the city also started to drop like flies, the Dodger was blamed for the shameful defeat and for bringing the plague. He was attacked by an angry mob and killed. It was not the first violent death of a Dodger, but it had been the first in over two centuries. The culprits hid in an area just across the Ponte di Paglia bridge, along the Riva degli Schiavoni, heading out of the lagoon from St. Mark's. The inhabitants refused to give them up, so, as collective punishment, the whole area was destroyed. A tradition would then continue that the area should not be rebuilt again, and this held until after the Second World War. The city had fallen on bad times. They were officially at war with the two main empires at the time, their great fleet was a shadow of its former self, with many ships having been burned at sea to try and stop the spread of the plague. But the deaths continued. Also, they were in a situation they were not at all used to being in. They had no money. Dodger Michel II was obviously the main scapegoat for the situation, but something had gone wrong also in the system of checks and balances that were supposed to keep tabs on the power system of the Republic. So it was that the great and the powerful of the city took some time before the election of the next Dodger to think things over, and in 1172 and 1173 they took a breather to reorganise. They created an assembly of 480 men that would be elected by 12 electors, two from each of the sestrieri, or districts of the city. Then, after the first election, the Council of 480 would turn around and select the 12 electorates. So in the end, aside from the first exercise in democracy, the two bodies ended up just electing each other. This organisation was to be one of the main governing bodies of the Republic, but it would not substitute the Dodger. The Supreme Representative would continue to be elected, but not by the Arengo, the assembly of all the inhabitants of the city, but by an electoral college of 11 men. Plus, the Dodger's inner circle of councillors, his cabinet if you will, were increased from two to six. After the election of the Dodger, he would simply be presented to the Arengo. The first test of this system caused widespread rioting. Therefore, a workaround was invented. 
the Dodger would be elected and then presented to the Arengo, but the formula would change, becoming Ecco il vostro Dodger, se così vi piace, meaning here is your Dodger, if he is to your liking. Everybody really knew it was just a question of face and not substance. There had been a move to take power away from the bottom, the Arengo, and the very top, the Dodger, to reinforce oligarchy of rich merchant families of the city in the centre. The Dodger, however, needed to maintain prestige, so he was given more money and more sumptuous clothes, carriages and living furnishes, as well as public ceremonies. All of this managed to get by in the end without too much of a fuss thanks to the choice of the right man for the job, one Sebastiano Ziani. He was intelligent, energetic and still very active at the advanced age for the time of 70 with a vast administrative experience. Oh, and it also didn't hurt that he was absolutely stinking rich. Ziani got right down to tackling some of the problems of the day. He started by temporarily suspending the repayment of government bonds issued, a measure which wasn't popular, but passed without too much agitation by appealing to the Venetian sense of patriotism. He also worked on a diplomatic level by asking the Byzantines for peace, which they didn't grant since, at the time, Venice was helping Frederick Barbarossa to besiege the city of Ancona under Byzantine influence. This obviously meant that they had patched things up somewhat with the Holy Roman Emperor, and the refusal of Constantinople strengthened Venetian ties with the Norman king William II of Sicily. The real turning point of redemption for the city was 1177, when it was chosen as the location for the peace signing between Frederick Barbarossa and Alexander III and the communes. This event saw numerous delegations come from all over the place, bringing with them a big influx of cash for the city. After all, Venice was a vassal of no one. They were not tied to the rules of free hospitality for their overlords. Those who wanted to stay had to pay. Since things went on for a few months, the flow of income also lasted quite a while. To this, Venice could add the new trade concessions granted by Barbarossa and official recognition by the Pope of the Patriarchy of Venice, a situation that had been only de facto and not de jure, by law. It is also at this time that legend would have a golden ring donated by the Pope to the Dodger for the marriage of the sea ceremony. So now everyone, led by the Dodger, would head out of the lagoon into the open sea, do the whole praying and ceremony thing and then chuck a golden ring into the sea to seal the deal. After managing to steer the Republic back to calmer waters, Sebastiano Ziani died in 1178 and in his place came Orio Mastro Pietro. Again, just what the situation required. Indeed, the man was an experienced diplomat and things abroad were getting rather messy. There was the whole business of the Hohenstaufen taking over all of southern Italy in one quick marriage alliance, which we'll be talking about soon. Then there was a big, big mess over in the Byzantine Empire, which I won't even start to get into. Also, issues with the Hungarians over control of the Croatian side of the Adriatic 
were starting up again. Indeed, it was thanks to Pope Gregory's call for the Third Crusade, the one of Richard the Lionheart and Saladin, that Venice managed to get out of the conflict with Hungary without losing face. After another tax, a fleet was made ready and left the lagoon with armies from all over the peninsula. The Dodger left with the fleet but quickly slipped out of the history books of that event, preferring to administer things back home. He then abdicated in 1192, and that is when Enrico Dandolo became Dodger, and that, my dear, dear listeners, brings us full circle back to where we had arrived in our main narration six episodes and almost two months ago before setting off on our long tangent. I know that there are some big Venice fans out there, and I hope you have enjoyed this detour. I also hope that the ones who are less interested will have stuck with me patiently. Thanks to all of you. This is obviously not the last we will hear of Venice. It will probably come more into our main narrative now that it's on its way to forming a land empire. But for the moment, we need to head south. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks to the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron, Benjamin, Deborah, Eric R, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Paul, Scott, Thomas and YR. To the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Silane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Greg, Ignacio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Roberta, Rodney, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent. And the tippy top, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Sen, Paolo and reactionary Venetian, as well as Lisa Kay. Welcome, welcome, welcome to new Patreon supporters Greg, Cara, Gary, Fabio, and, wait for it, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian. Would love to hear the story behind that one if you have some time. Thanks very much also for a lovely review from Dead Dog in Belgium. Um, I have the suspicion you were actually trying to rate another podcast because he says one of the best podcasts I've come across can't be right thanks to everyone in general for listening and until next time arrivederci Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.